Well, today I'm going to talk a little bit about consulting projects. Um, I haven't done a podcast in a long time about what it's like to be on a consulting project, and I thought it would be a good time to do this. I'm currently in Astana, Kazakhstan. I don't know if anyone's ever been here, but it's today a gleaming, glittering city which is being propelled by mineral wealth. I was here uh, just after the fall of the Soviet Union, and believe me, it was difficult times in the city and in this country. It still is, by and large, but I think it's quite um, it's it's nice to see part of the world with so much potential try start to live up to that potential. And I've always had a I think I've always had a soft spot for uh, Central Asia. I've always liked it. I've liked the people. I've liked the culture, the cuisine, and so on. And it's it's so nice to come here and to see so many things happening and to see this vibrant middle class growing up, uh, to see freedom of the press and so on. So it's it's quite nice uh, to see the changes that have taken place. And I had the opportunity to have breakfast this morning with a graduate of the Booth School of Business who is working for um, one of the big three in Moscow but happens to be stationed in um, Astana on a uh, mining project. And quite a nice chap, I must say. Very polite. Um, he reminds me of the way, you know, consultants used to be very humble, very polite. No one really calls me sir these days, but he does call me sir. So, I was a bit surprised by that. Uh, considering the guy's pedigree, his his accomplishments, and so on, he's just a very humble, I think, well brought up young man, who's definitely going to go very far. And he was talking to me about one of the projects he's experiencing, and it's not going so well for him. It's not going badly, and I think just to step back, what I'm going to do in this podcast is I'm going to talk you through some of the challenges you face when you are still probably in your first six months and you're still pretty much starry-eyed about being in management consulting and a little bit uh, unsure of what to do because you haven't learned much about the organization yet, you don't know how to structure your career and you really don't know what decisions to take to turn you into a star partner yet. I mean, that that's really the crux of the matter. You've got, you, you, you have so many different options being thrown at you, so many different pieces of advice that you don't know what to do. And remember, when you join as an associate, there are going to be other associates from the booth class previously who are going to give you advice. There are going to be other engagement managers that give you advice. But by and large, most of these people, I mean, no offense to them, but they're still young. They don't really understand the organization. And even if they've been there for three to four years, they, they still don't understand the organization. I mean, I'm going to give the perspective of a partner and how I would look at the problem. I'm also going to talk about the mistakes I made. Everyone makes mistakes and how you need to navigate your way through this. Now, a lot of times I've um, I've mentioned the background I have and the work I've done, but maybe I'll give you some background about how I've arrived at those decisions. And, and when I was talking to this um, young um, Moscow associate, I, was, I liked the fact that a lot of the issues, a lot of the well, the situation I was going through was very similar to the situation I went through, and I could counsel him quite carefully on that in terms of how he picks the partners he works with and so on. So, if I step back early in my career, um, I did work in a number of sectors, I'll be honest. I mean, I was never a specialist in any one sector, but over time, I started doing a lot of work in one particular sector. I started doing a lot of work in CPG, consumer and packaged goods, or what we call it out of the London office, FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods, and that's what we call it in the emerging markets. And I was pretty much enjoying the work because FMCG projects are interesting, right? I mean, we were doing a project for a major FMCG company for one of their deodorant brands, and, you know, you get to attend these fashion shows. It's it's a lot more glamorous than some of your colleagues who are doing work in telecoms and going out to base stations and analyzing traffic through base stations. So I like the CPG work. I was building a good name for myself. 
and things were going well for me, I think. But as many of you know, I started off in a boutique and then I moved across eventually to Rodenberg and then to BCG um, as a partner and so on. And when I went to to um, Roland Berger initially, I had to align myself with, with, with a part of the organization, right? I had to align myself with um, with some partners, and even and even if I was relatively senior, I had to align myself with the practice and decide which practice I was going to be a part of. And the reality is that when when I moved across, there. While I was very good at CPG, I was by no means a world expert, but I, I was very well experienced in the projects. I did a lot of pricing work. I did a lot of category management work. I did a lot of branding work as well. Um, and a lot for a consultant doesn't mean you've done 10 years. It means you've done about three projects, right? And they've gone well. That's what consultants mean when they mean a lot. They don't mean they've done 20 of these projects. That's when you're a partner and you say, I've done a lot. I think I've done something close to 100 projects in my career. So anyway, I did a lot of projects. I was quite well experienced and I knew the work well, but the the team that was running um, F CPG, I d couldn't gel with them. I mean, I've had many meetings with them when I joined the firm and we, ha we had a lot of discussions. I mean, I sat in on partner meetings. I sat in on discussions. Um, you know, whenever we had these client planning meetings, we'd have them in the evenings on a Friday, sometimes on a Thursday from about 4 o'clock to about 6 o'clock. And there'd be this wide-ranging discussion with all the associates, all the managers, and all the partners. And I really felt that the firm, or that team, didn't really seem to like me a lot. You know, I don't know, I've had all these great ideas. I'd worked on some pretty impressive projects um, for clients, and I could talk about them quite eloquently. In fact, some of the areas I then work, the, the entire uh, CPG organization had never done work there. So it was, I was pushing the boundaries in some areas, especially around pricing and some of the work I was doing. Um, um, and I was never be able to build traction. So even with the partners in CPG, I'd have many discussions with them and they'd all agree to things. But when the time came, I felt I was being left out of key discussions. I'd, it really meant a lot to me that for one of the most important CPG clients in the world, we had just won a big pricing project against Bain. And I was actually totally left out of it. Um, and when I say left out of it, I had met the client initially. I had completely wrote the letter. I don't do proposals. I hate it. Even when I was young, I never did proposals. I just wrote out these very eloquent, insightful letters to clients. I wrote the, the letter to the client. I went and presented to the client and we won the work. You know, the client really liked us. We'd won the privilege of serving them. But once that had happened and we were ready to staff the project, I was pretty much left out of any discussions and I didn't feel very good about that, to be honest. And I'm sure there are many reasons why no one wanted me on that project, but I, it hurt a lot. And really, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd made the wrong decision, you know, what was going to happen to my career and so on. And then there was this new partner around. I think he was an associate partner, one level below partner, right? One, low be one level below equity partner. He had just joined. He didn't come from uh, the organization. He came from outside the organization. I, I think he came from McKinsey, but I'm not sure. Um, and at least I am sure, but I don't want to give away details, right? Because I think you can identify this guy, given the way I'm going to describe him. So anyway... Um, he came into the organization. He was young, he was about 30 years old, um, very different from the rest of the people, not reserved. You know, he, the rest of the partners were quite reserved. This guy was not reserved. He was very outgoing, very gregarious. He would always be talking to the younger consultants and so on. And he was trying to push the firm into capital asset projects, you know, f projects that were not 
he wasn't a fu- he wasn't a sector specialist. He was a functional specialist. So he did pro- he did work wherever there was a lot of capital investments being made. Like you're building a mine, you're building a railway tunnel, you're building a new railway line, you're building a dam. His t- his job was to go in and help the organization uh, structure these capital investments, right? And I think he was a he was a. I found him to be quite odd, to be honest, but. At that point, he was the only one interested in me, right? So all the other guys who I should be working with, the CPG people and so on, they kind of said, you know what, in the, by the actions, you know, we're not really interested in your work. We think we can do it ourselves. And I was kind of, and I was definitely being sidelined. And I could stay there and work in CPG, which at that time seemed to be the hot practice and doing all the exciting work and everyone was talking about it and every firm function, everyone was talking about how these are the guys to watch. Or I could go and work with this guy who was doing capital-intensive work that, well, to be honest, no one was talking about. This guy had no allies. He was being sidelined by the organization. You know what I said? Okay, here's a guy. um, He wants to work with me, clearly. He's putting me into all kinds of projects. He involves me in every single discussion. You know, what do I do? And in the reality was that he was a one level below equity partner. He would call me into his office all the time to talk about different strategies and how they're going to play things, different projects they want to run. In fact, even called up one of his friends who happened to be CEO of a massive German multinational engineering company and said, you know, we've got this brilliant, brilliant um, uh, uh, a young guy in our firm uh, that I want him to come across and spend some time with you and talk about the issues in your organization. And he just sent me across, right? There I was. It should be on Christmas vacation. I'm spending time with this German CEO uh, discussing all kinds of issues, right? But th- he had a lot of faith in me. I mean, that was, the, that was the, 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 the defining characteristic. He was working in a non-existent practice, a non-existent function. He had no allies. No one liked him. But he believed in me. So I threw in the towel and I said, okay, look, I come from a CPG. Although I've done many projects, I'm more CPG, but I'm not getting any traction on CPG. So I'm just going to go and work on capital intensive or capital asset management projects. So I threw in the towel and said, okay, let's do this. I'll, you know, We were having a discussion once and I actually remember saying it very clearly. Um, we were talking about what we could do for this practice. I said, look, you ha- I will support you. You just tell me what you need. And we developed this very good combination, right? Because in any team, if you think about teams, all great teams in the world, there's a, there's a visionary and there's a doer. There was Jamie Demon and Sandy Wheel. For those people who know banking, you know, Sandy Wheel was the visionary who created um, Shearson. Then he created Citigroup. And he had two right-hand men in throughout his career. He first had Peter Cohen, and then he had Jamie Demon. So... Sandy Wheel was the visionary, the guy who brought together the mergers, and Jamie Demon was the guy that made it work. There's no point in having a merger if you're not going to make it work because then it hits your share price and everyone thinks you're a, you're a stupid visionary. So Jamie Demon was the guy that went in and made the merger work. If they bought a firm, Jamie Demon would go in, understand the income statements, and strip out the costs. I mean, the stories of him taking out payphones and polystyrene cups to reduce costs in banks. And we can still see some of his signature work if you visit some JP Morgan offices and I think it's Capital One offices as well. But the point is we had a very similar relationship. He was... I, I think that I'm also a little bit of a visionary, but, you know, everyone thinks they're a visionary when they're young. So I said, okay, no problem. I will be the execution. And we kind of came to that agreement without actually verbalizing it because I knew that's the way it was going to work. So he became the visionary. He was the one who started putting together the the actions that was going to build the practice, but he needed results, right? So there was a project that was going on and it was being run by another consulting firm. 
and not going very well, right? It was going really, really badly, actually. I mean, it was a pretty much a disaster. But the chief operating officer of that client knew the partner I was working with, or the associate partner I was now working with, and he said, you know what? This is going really badly. We don't know what to do. We don't even have a budget. And, and we don't have a budget allocation for the overbilling that this consulting firm is giving us. We don't know what to do. It's not working. So the smart partner said, okay, why don't you do this? I've got this really brilliant young guy. I'm going to send him in. It's going to cost you nothing. Skip him there for two to three weeks, and he's going to help you. Your right-hand man, he's going to make, he's going to help you bring everything in order. So I was propelled into this really hostile environment because you're working with with other consultants, right? Who, who don't like you first. He was not going to share any information with you. You're also the kind of guy who came from CPG. You know, you tend to dress up well, and you're going into this environment where they are building railway lines in the middle of Central Asia. Yeah, it's not a lot of fun. Right, so you're doing work for a German conglomerate that's building railway lines in the middle of Central Asia. You, no one likes you there. You have no friends, right? Everyone's your enemy, except maybe the chief operating officer, who's also slightly your enemy because he doesn't know what's the end game, you know, why you're being sent in for free. And that was a bit of a turning point, I think, for me because I did go in. The project was going badly, and I did manage to beat everyone back into order. And... I, was, I am very good with numbers. I mean, that's my strength. I'm good with numbers and I'm good on the basics. I can read the basics. Now, it always surprises me how many people today can't read a balance sheet and income statement. And even though I have no training in uh, you know, accounting, I can still do that very, very well. Better than most people, actually. So go in with the basics and just bring everything in order. And what I find with most consulting firms is that they talk a good game. But what happens is that the people, the staff on the projects tend to be average and not the people they advertised. But more than that, especially for the tier two firms, they'll say things like we're building a strategy. But, you know, when you look at the plans, what is their strategy? Well, they've got this checklist that they just check. Do they have a five-year plan? Check. Do they have a cash flow statement? Check. Then once they've gone through the checklist, they'll then say, what does the checklist say? They'll put it all together and call this your strategy, right? So immediately there were opportunities to fix things. And basically the problem in this project was that the benefits case that this group of clients that identified was not working. It was not at all able to be validated. So to go in and fix the business case. And I tended to specialize in these kind of business case, quant heavy, model heavy kind of projects, right? So I went in and fixed it, brought everything into order. And I also made sure that we were making the COO look good. That was something that we had decided a long time ago. I would make the CEO look good. So we were feeding information that allowed him to to control the operating divisions, which is something he was struggling to do because the operating divisions weren't really willing to listen to him. So we gave him the tools to control his operating divisions, which he was absolutely blown away with. You know, he didn't think that a business, he had never seen a business case used not just as a way to identify opportunities for savings and cost reduction and revenue enhancement, but also ways to control the organization. So we used the business case as a tool to take control of the numbers and feed the right numbers to the COO so he could make better decisions, but also confront his business unit executives when they said something couldn't happen. So we basically made the CEO a better person. So we were taking, we we're collecting all these numbers, but we were finding more and more, I think, sophisticated uses for them. And obviously at the end of the project, I mean, the, we, we, were, we were given a mandate to come in and we sold, I think, one of the largest projects we had ever sold um, for a major industrial company, but it was a, it was a fairly significant project that that we we um, brought through. And from that point onwards, I stayed working in this capital-intensive sectors, but clearly it wasn't my area of expertise. And uh, the point of the story is that 
that's a very important point. I speak to a lot of consultants and they always tell me, you know, how do I pick projects? How do I pick sectors? And this is the hot sector. If I go in there, my career will take off. It doesn't work that way. You know, it, it, the hot sector is attracting everyone. It's attracting all the great people. You know, there's a reason why it's so difficult to make it in San Francisco and New York to succeed because it's attracting the best minds in the world, right? So there's one thing to go after a hot sector. That's good. There's another thing to go into a sector that wants you. That's also good. But I think you have to be very smart about your career, right? You have to find a partner who wants to see you develop. I think that's very important. A lot of people tell me, you know, this partner is very influential. Everyone is talking about him. So what? You know, if, some, if that partner is influential, that doesn't mean he cares about you. It doesn't mean that he wants your career to go forward. You know, it's, it's a relationship. You, if you work with someone, you should help them be successful and they will help you be successful. The last thing you want to do is to just jump onto a practice or a partner's tail who is already moving forward at a rapid race and just ride it to success. It doesn't really work that way. Um, and in fact, a partner who is doing very well is going to have is is choice of outstanding consultants to pick from. So, so, the, so if you are just average and you want to you know, jump onto a fast-moving train, sure, your career will progress, but how far will it progress? You definitely won't be one of the inner crowd, right? And more than that, you should also remember that um, in a consulting firm, it's a pure meritocracy in the sense that if a partner wants to build a practice, he can't tell consultants, work with me. He's got to convince them to work with him because basically the talent goes where they think they will get the best return for their careers. So it's a very mobile, fluid industry. So I picked this functional area because no one was interested in it. It was very tiny and I could be part of the team that built it. But I also felt that this partner I was dealing with was ambitious, he was young, because he was actively seeking me out to work with him, he wanted me to develop and that's how I picked him. And that's how I picked that function to develop my, my expertise and that's why I ended up spending the rest of my career, you know, something like four, not four, I think it was more like six or five, six or seven years uh, working in this area that had that I had previously had no experience and then building up my expertise slowly until I became an expert in this area. And that's where I do most of my work today. So that's why I'm always traveling to these very unusual parts of the world where they're you know, very much involved in massive capital projects. Um, but coming back to the story with this candidate from Astana, it's the sense that I think that when he was picking his career path or choosing how he's going to develop his career, I think he was making a lot of decisions I see young people make. They, He's being advised by other associates and engagement managers who, frankly, have not yet seen the impact of the decisions they've made. So an associate will tell you, you know what, I work for this, for the corporate finance practice, and it's so wonderful, it's so amazing, it definitely changed my life. But how do they know it's changed their lives? I mean, have they waited out the six years to see where it's going to leave them in six years? They don't know. So, frankly, I don't think you should take too much advice from associates. Engagement managers are the same things. I mean, they haven't seen the impact of their decisions. I think when you're going to make a decision in terms of where you're going to build your career, you've got to ask yourself the following. Forget about how attractive the sector is. Forget about which is the most powerful sectors. Those mean nothing. You have to find a partner who is interested in your personal development, and then you have to invest to help him be successful at what he's trying to do. I also encourage people to pick practices which are very young because there's much more opportunities for you to develop. Young practices don't have an hierarchy yet. Yes, there's always a hierarchy, right? It's an intellectual hierarchy in a consulting firm where you've got the senior partners, you've got the partners who are still young, you've got the engagement managers who are sort of growing into the ranks, and you've got an army of people um, at the associate and business 
Angeles level. And if you look at the corporate finance practice of McKinsey, that's an example of that particular practice. You know, it's got well-established leadership, world famous. I cannot tell you how many people are trying to get into the McKinsey corporate finance team. I mean, we've got quite a lot of candidates interviewing in that practice. It's a very, very world-famous practice. And then there are other practices, right? And the thing is that don't assess a practice's capability on a superficial level. It's not about how hot the practice is, how much work it's doing, the prestige of the clients and so on. You have to look at the life cycle of the uh, practice or the function, you know. Is it young? If it's young, then you can't measure the prestige of the clients and so on. You have to measure the partner that's driving it. And if it's very young and the partner's unknown, that doesn't mean anything. You've got to be able to assess someone directly on their merit. You have to be able to engage them and find out, you know, is this someone who is going to be able to build a practice and is going to take care of me and going to help me if I help him. And that's the reality. Most people are very bad at judging other individuals. So they make very poor decisions. But I would recommend that when you are making these career decisions, forget about the sector and how exciting it is and who the clients are because that means nothing. If you have bad experiences on a project, doesn't matter who the client is, you will have a horrible time. I mean, you can be doing a really sexy, exciting project for Aston Martin, but if that project's going badly, it'll be like hell for you. So the apparent prestige of a client is no correlation to the apparent feelings you'll have when you're on that project. And I do find many people pick their careers like that. And after speaking to this um, MBA graduate associate, we had a long discussion about his career. And I said, look, based on what he's told me, I would recommend he stays where he is. Um, you know, there are other partners who want him, uh, but the partner he's working with now, while it's a new practice in the office, he does, based on what projects he's given this young guy and the kind of responsibility seems that he is grooming him more than he should be. And for me, that's the most important sign. Do not pick sectors that sound exciting and sexy. Do not pick regions that sound exciting and sexy. You pick people who are you going to partner with in life. And that's the moral of life, right? Whenever you're about to make a decision, you ask yourself, do I trust this person? And are they going to put their my interests first when they make a decision and if the answer is no then it doesn't matter how interesting a sector is because your career will go nowhere and i always tell people that when you make a decision even when you're about to get an offer from a consulting firm and you've got two consulting firms competing for your signature you ask yourself this which partner do you think you believe was most interested in your development and you feel is going to put your personal development first and if the answer is the firm that paid you the least and seemed the most uninteresting then you go with that firm and in fact I've made that's how I made decisions in my career people always ask how did you end up here well yes I may have only interviewed a few firms but I interviewed a few firms because when I met the partners I really felt that this partner was far more interested in my personal development than anyone else and that's how you pick it. You pick people. You don't pick companies. You don't pick sectors. I mean, I have a lot of friends in uh, the VC industry, and they always tell me that when they, when they plan to fund a startup, they don't look at the idea. I mean, ideas are a dime a dozen, right? How many search engine ideas are there? I mean, I mean today there's like 100 search engine ideas trying to topple Google. Probably an equal number of people trying to put out the next social media icon. But the point is you pick the individual. It's the same in life and leadership. When you're deciding how to develop your career and where you want your t career to go, you don't pick the sector. You pick the individual leading the, se the sector or the function. And that's how you build your career. And that's a very important point, right? In life, you're going to learn that you are always, in, in a manner of speaking, helping someone. You Even if you're working on a corporate finance project, by doing a good project, you're helping the partner look good for the client. Make sure you help someone who's going to appreciate it and reciprocate by helping you in your career. And that is 
the most important thing. As always, I'll be happy to comment.